0: Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for caring enough about us to reveal yourself to us. And so Lord, we, we pray this morning that the Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written would work in our hearts so that we could see more of you, so that we could behold, so that we could understand more of who you are. And most importantly, God, we pray that the Spirit would work so that we could see Jesus, so that we could give him the praise that he deserves. And it's in his great name we pray, amen. Now I I have seen a fair amount of dumb fights, in my day. Um, but there is one that I think takes the cake um, for being at least the most ridiculous thing that I've ever observed, or fight that I've ever observed. Uh, every year, my, uh, my baseball team in high school, my high school baseball team, another way of saying that, uh, used to hold a fundraiser car wash, which in theory was a nice idea. Um, High schoolers out there providing a service for the community, asking for support, engaging people who live around us, right? In theory, that's cool. The practical reality, though, (laughs) was something else. I think at this point I would probably, considering the job that we did, I think I'm more likely to pay a group of high school boys to stay away from my car (laughs) than I would be to have them wash it. But at one of these fundraising car wash, uh, car washes, I think it was my my senior year of high school, uh, a fight broke out amongst our team. And again, I think it was one of the most ridiculous fights I have ever witnessed, because it was over a donut. Uh, A couple hours into the car wash, our coach wanted to do something nice for us. So we went across the street from our high school where we had the car wash. And he he went to the donut shop and he bought a couple boxes of donuts. And as soon as he brought them over, I think like within seconds, our whole team converged and the donuts were basically gone, except for one. There was one remaining donut in the box. And there were two guys who did not have a donut. So they both went for the remaining donut. Well, one person grabbed it, the other person grabbed the other half. It split in two. The person who thought he got there first did not appreciate the other t- the, his teammate coming in and, and trying to take part of his donut. So then he proceeded to throw his half of the donut at his teammate, only to get punched in the face. It was, again, the most ridiculous fight I think I have ever observed. And we were all shocked, but I think the person who was the most shocked, apart from the the guy who got hit in the face, uh, was our coach, (laughs) who thought, here I am doing something nice for these guys, only to watch just mayhem break out over something so small. So he broke up the fight and he kind of lined us all up and proceeded to yell at us for the next 15 minutes. And he had a whole list of reasons that he was laying into us, but one of the things that he kept coming back to, the thing that he was the most indignant about, is the fact that this fight happened in a public space while our teammates, while these teammates were wearing our school's colors and school paraphernalia. And he kept coming back to this, like, you are wearing your team's name on your chest and you're, doing, you're fighting over a donut. But he kept coming back to the fact that they were representing our team. You know, they were wearing our colors. They were bearing our name. And they were doing, again, is the most ridiculous fight I've ever observed. But in that moment, they were representing all of us. So their shame was our shame. And when you belong to a team, whether it's with sports or work or even in a church, you understand that your actions aren't simply your own. You belong, at least in part, to other people. And your actions have an effect on them. And in the same way, other people's actions, when they're on your team, have an effect on you. And that experience is a shadow of a much bigger reality, a reality that we're presented with in this text. The reality that no person is an island. What we do, even in secret, has an impact on others. God didn't make us to be independent and autonomous. We belong to each other for good and for ill. And our text this morning presents us with both examples. All of humanity has two primary representatives, In the one, we suffer the ruin of sin. But in the other, we have the opportunity to be rescued by the overflow of grace. So this morning, we're gonna take some time to walk through the latter portion of Romans 5. A couple weeks ago, we we opened a series on Romans 5 through 7. So we looked at verses 1 through 11, again, two weeks ago. And today, we're looking at verses 12 through 21. And as we do so, we're gonna look at what our representatives have brought to us, right? We'll start with Adam and our condition apart from Christ as, as being ruined by sin. Then we'll look to Christ and his dramatic and gracious rescue. And we'll close by looking at the future promise to reign in life with him. So let's begin with our condition under Adam, a condition being ruined by sin. This is where we are apart from the work of Jesus. As we read in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In verse 12, in what I just read, we have a 25-word description of the problem that plagues all of humanity. And our problem goes all the way back to the beginning of history with our first parents, Adam and Eve, whose story is recorded for us in Genesis 2 and 3. In that scene, in those chapters, God gave the command to our first parents to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the warning that if they disobeyed, if they ate from the tree, if they did the thing that God specifically told them not to do, death would enter the world. Well, that is exactly what they did, right? And the rest is history. Now, I don't wanna just rush past this story and its significance because I think we can walk away from it with all sorts of false notions about God and the nature of our life with him. See, when God created humans, he placed them in a world that he declared to be good over and over again. God saw that it was good over and over again. But not only did he place them in a good world, he put them in a garden, an area cultivated perfectly suited to support them. And he gave our first parents a task, the man and the woman together were to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. They were to take the beauty and the order of the garden and spread that, extend it out into the rest of God's good world. But this wasn't a task they were supposed to engage in on their own. God's intention wasn't to function as some sort of absentee foreman, right, go do it. No, the man and the woman were to rule together under the guidance and direction of God, explore his good world not as an end in itself, but as a means to getting to know God in a deeper and truer way because that is the very thing that we were created for. We were created to know and love God. Now, to accomplish the task that God had given Adam and Eve, they would need knowledge, but they were to receive it in relationship with God, not independently from him. And this is what's at the very heart of the fall. The Old Testament scholar John Walton explains Wisdom is good, and we can therefore safely assume that God did not intend to withhold it from humanity. But true wisdom must be acquired through a process, generally from instruction by those who are wise. The fall is defined by the fact that Adam and Eve acquired wisdom illegitimately, thus trying to take God's role for themselves rather than eventually joining God in his role as they were taught wisdom and became the fully functional vice regents of God involved in the process of bringing order. If humans are to work alongside God in extending order, subdue and rule, as we see in Genesis 1.28, they need to attain wisdom, but as endowment from God, not by seizing it for autonomous use. The problem in the garden, and our problem ever since, is the desire for autonomy. The attempt to take from God on our own terms, rather than receive from him, On his terms. And so the theologian John Stott defines the essence of sin in this way Sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of sin is thinking that we can do things on our own, thinking that we don't need God. I love how this point is captured in the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, something that we read with our kids on a, on a regular basis. There's Sally Lloyd-Jones in her version or her telling of the story of the fall. She writes this. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. Because if you do, you'll think you'll know everything. You'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew If they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him and they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him and life without him wouldn't be life at all. But they did eat the fruit and death and sadness and tears did come. And Paul explains that these things spread to everyone because in Adam all sinned. And the Greek word translated "sinned" is hemarton from harmartion. Oh my goodness! I had practiced this before. You guys are not going to be you're not you're not going to be impressed with my Greek now. It's okay. Uh, Hemartan, and it's rightly translated "sin." But something to note about this particular uh, this particular verb in the way that it's translated uh, or the way that it's written is that it's in a third-person plural verb in the aorist tense. Now, the aorist tense refers to a past completed action. And the idea being communicated here is that in Adam's sin, we all sinned as a completed act. And this is an uncomfortable truth for those of us who live in an individualistic culture like ours. But there's an idea referred to by some as corporate solidarity, and it runs throughout the entire Bible going all the way back, as we see, to the garden. Adam is our representative. He's wearing our team's colors. And as such, what he does, we do. If he succeeds, so do we. If he fails, so do we. And that's very clearly the point that's being made here. But it's a point, again, that people who live in a Western individualistic culture like ours tend to be very uncomfortable with. We tend to not like it. We like to think of ourselves as being the masters of our own destiny. But that way of viewing the world is relatively new. In the scope of human history, uh, this hasn't been the predominant view of who we are as persons. And it doesn't factor in the reality, the very real, reality of our interdependence. We are contingent creatures. We're contingent on God and we are contingent on other people. Think for a minute about all the factors at work in order to provide something as mundane as a can of beans that you buy at the grocery store. Those things are are grown, they're cultivated, they're collected, then shipped, packaged, branded, shipped again, received, stored, and finally stocked. And, I, and I'm positive I'm leaving out a whole host of steps for something as simple as buying a can of beans. We are dependent on so many other people in order for us to do the simplest of things. And I think this is an area in which we need to lean on the wisdom of other cultures. Katie and I, when, when we were in college, we got to do a semester in South Africa. And uh, while we were there, we interacted a fair amount with uh, Zulu culture. And there's a concept in Zulu, uh, in Zulu culture known as Ubuntu, which simply translated means, I am because you are. And it's part of a, a larger phrase which literally means that a person is a person through other people. And while this is a concept that our culture downplays... I don't think that we've done away with it altogether. We, we see vestiges of that idea in certain pockets, like sports, for example. Right. If you're a sports fan and your team wins, what do you say? You say, we won! And a cynic might be inclined to say, well, I didn't see you suit up, All right? But we tend not to say that because, again, this is a, the concept of corporate solidarity is one that we hold to intuitively and, and we like it to a point, but it's a, it's a reality that we need to grapple with. Corporate solidarity is real. As John Donne famously put it, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a cloud be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We all sinned in Adam and through Adam we inherit a sinful nature. When we are born, we are born sons and daughters of Adam and Eve and we are born into their mess. We're stuck. And in that mess, bound to sin, we also choose sin freely. <laughs> it's a tough predicament. Now before we get into the good news of our rescue, because thankfully there is good news, we don't just get stuck there perpetually, I want to spend a moment talking about verses 13 and 14, which are probably the most difficult in this passage to understand. All right, there we read, In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. Now, having explained the effects of Adam's fall, it would have made logical sense to move on then to the work of Christ, the second Adam, But Paul pauses here so we can take a moment to explain how our solidarity with death and sin through Adam has remained a constant throughout history. Now, realizing that Paul is arguing that sin and its deadly effects has remained constant throughout history, it seems confusing for Paul to then say in verse 13, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. But he doesn't mean that it's not counted for it is because of sin that all bef- that all died before God gave the law to Moses. We see the effects of sin playing out. What Paul is doing in verse thirteen is drawing a comparison with what happened when the law is present, with what happens when the law is present. Right? When God's law is absent, sin doesn't seem to be reckoned in the same way. But the law makes sin apparent and sharply defined. I was thinking about this text when I was uh, in the canyon here in Aliso the other day, Um, and an illustration came to me. Um, See, when it rains, like it has been for the last couple of days, the canyon closes anywhere from one to three days, depending on the amount and severity of the rain. Um, I go into the the canyon nearly every day, so rain is a major interruption to my routine. Now, I usually try to respect the closure. Um, It's closed in part for safety, but also so that the trails don't get messed up uh, from getting used in in super muddy conditions. But there are times when it's been a few days, it seems like it should be pretty dry, and uh, I intentionally do not check to see whether or not the park is closed. And I will go to a different entrance of the park where there is no signage, so that I'm not aware of the law. So technically, I'm not breaking any rules. But if, I don't, if I'm not confronted with the law, is the park any less closed? No. In the same way, sin was real. And its effects, as seen by the fact that all people died before Moses was given the law. But through the law, it became more sharply defined and accounted. Because that is what the law does. And the reference to those who didn't sin in the likeness of Adam, that again is a comparison. All have sinned and all suffer its effects, but not all sin in the same likeness, i.e. disobey a direct revealed command. So our condition in the first Adam is dire. We are under sin and its ruinous effects. But again, thankfully, our story doesn't end there. In the next few verses, we see that in Christ we are rescued by grace. Let's go ahead and read together verses 15 through 17. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift, which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Now in verse 14 Paul tells us that Adam is a type of the one to come, but then he immediately clarifies what he does not mean by this. And he gives several examples from in verses 15 to 17 of the difference between Adam and Christ. First, there is a difference in motivation. Paul categorizes Adam's deed as a trespass, implying a deliberate act of wrongdoing, while he describes Jesus' action as a freely given gift. This distinction suggests that Adam's act was driven by self-interest, whereas Jesus' act was an embodiment of selfless sacrifice. Jesus' deed in dying for humanity wasn't just an act of obedience to God, but it was also an expression of unmerited compassion for humanity. Earlier, I quoted John Stott as saying that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but he then goes on to elaborate that the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. So the motivation is totally different, as are the results. I'm not ready for that, sorry. All right, the outcomes of Adam's in Jesus' deeds are entirely opposite. Adam's sin resulted in death, referring referring here to the physical demise of humanity. This outcome contrasts starkly with the life that Jesus' act brings. Furthermore, Adam's action brought condemnation, aligning with our concept of legal guilt, while Jesus' action led to justification, undoing the consequences of Adam's transgression. So two very different results along with two very different types of dominion. Paul contrasts the reign of death due to Adam's sin with the reign of life offered through Christ. And this comparison highlights a shift from a state of bondage under death to a state of freedom and empowerment in life, suggesting a servitude under sin to rulership in Christ's kingdom. All right, look again at verse 17. If by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And the last thing I'll mention is there is a varying power and scope in our two representatives. Paul stresses that Christ's work vastly exceeds the impact of Adam's sin. He uses the phrase, how much more, twice, once in verse 15 and once here in verse 17, to indicate that the power and scope of Christ's deed are sufficient to overwhelm and reverse all of the effects of Adam's sin. The juxtaposition is between sin and grace. And one commentator notes that our condemnation is an act of justice and justice mets out equivalents exactly what is deserved, but our justification is an act of grace, and grace overflows and abounds, giving us 10, 100, 1,000, and an infinity of times more than we deserve. Okay, so we have sufficiently belabored the differences. So in what ways are they similar? Well, let's look at verses 18 and 19. So then as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The similarity has to do with the concept of, of corporate solidarity. Both Adam and Christ stand for and represent a body of people and what they have done for good or for ill is transferred to those that they represent. In these verses, the bad news of corporate solidarity is completely undone in our union with Jesus. Identification with Adam puts us in dire straits, but identification with Christ is a gift far beyond what we can understand, far beyond what we deserve. The good news is that the gift is not like the trespass. I think that's something that that is often hard for us to hear because we are so consumed, not simply with Adam's trespass, but with the trespasses that we lump on to it. It's easy for us to see our sin. It's easy for us to say, we do not deserve, there's no way There's no way that Christ could love me, that Christ could forgive what I've done. But, friends, the gift is not like the trespass. It far outweighs, it far exceeds, it overwhelms. In Adam, we get exactly what what we deserve. But in Christ, we get far beyond what we could have imagined. Grace, life, and more. And the more is elaborated on in the next two verses where we see that we get to reign with Christ. In verses 20 and 21, we read, The law came came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. At the heart of Paul's message, we find these profound words. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. And this highlights a crucial truth. The law's purpose was not to enforce righteousness. This is a a theme that Paul revisits in chapter 7 and further explores in in Galatians chapter 3. The law in its essence tends to amplify our sin, both in its frequency and severity. Yet in this increase of sin, we find ourselves being gently led closer to grace our journey deeper into sin paradoxically brings us closer to a state of brokenness and thereby closer to the heart of Christ. Paul captures this beautifully declaring, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And the term increased all the more is a humble attempt to capture the original meaning, which could be rendered as super increased or super abounded, illustrating a grace that is boundless and ever endlessly overflowing this grace is always far more abundant than sin if you can imagine that this idea is captured beautifully in the old hymn more to follow have you on the lord believed still there's more to follow of his grace have you received still there's more to follow oh the grace the father shows still there's more to follow Freely he, his grace, bestows. still, there's more to follow. More and more and more and more, always more to follow. Oh, His matchless, boundless love, still, there's more to follow. No matter the magnitude of your sin, be it in volume or depth, God's grace is more. It is there, and it is superabounding towards you there is no soul so distant that it lies beyond the reach of christ's grace and then we come to the phrase grace will reign which is a tender and powerful reminder of the blessings we find in christ grace not only forgives sins through the cross but also grants us righteousness and the promise of eternal life Thus, when we embrace the idea that grace reigns, we see God's throne as a throne of grace to which we can boldly come, assured of finding mercy and grace for every need. All this is made possible through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And the motif of Jesus as our meteor not only concludes the previous section of verse 11, but also serves as a recurring theme in subsequent chapters. We come back to it in chapter 6 and 7 and 8. And what, in part, is the purpose of all this grace? Verse 21 gently unfolds the mystery. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness— resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This encompasses not only the gift of eternal life, but also our empowerment to reign in life. As verse 17 assures us, if by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? This passage invites us to contemplate a life transformed by grace. Here, grace isn't merely a concept. It is a vibrant, living force that overcomes the dominion of sin and death. It's a grace that clothes us in righteousness and ushers us into life through Jesus Christ. Scripture here isn't just informing us. It is inviting us into an experience where we too, can reign in life, basking in its fullness, in the fullness of God's grace and righteousness that we receive as a gift. And I think that as we sit with, as we contemplate the grace that is available to us in Jesus, it has some practical effects. One of them being peace, which is a major theme that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Peace is available to us when we trust in Jesus' work on our behalf. See, we, we, again, I think it's easy for us to think of ourselves in terms of belonging to Adam, being marked by his sin as well as our own. But we can have peace despite that because Jesus rescues us. I mean, you Think of it this way. If you are the worst player on the 96 bulls, you're gonna be okay because you can depend on Michael Jordan. (laughs) In Christ, we have someone far more reliable. (laughs) Our awareness of our own sin, even if we feel like we are the worst person, the worst Christian in the building, it doesn't matter. We can have the peace of Christ that carries us and we can know that the spirit isn't done with us no matter where we are, that he will continue to work in our hearts, molding us and shaping us until we look like we belong on the team. Friends, corporate solidarity is a gift. Jesus will carry us so we can have peace. I think another practical effect of this is grace towards others. If you know that you are dead in Adam, until Jesus rescued you. I think if you internalize that, it is really hard for you to then be judgmental towards other people. I think it gives us grace and compassion for the failures of others. We aren't self-made people. We don't get to have pride in where we're at. No, the only thing that we boast in is the work of Jesus on our behalf. People fail us. (laughs) We fail ourselves. It is hard sometimes to not look around and judge, but if we are reminded of what God has done for us in Christ, judgment goes out the window. Again, we are not self-made people. We are who we are because Jesus has rescued us. So we can have peace. It gives us grace towards other people. And it gives us hope. One day we will reign in life. One day we will no longer feel the effects of sin. Mourning and tears and sadness will go away. And that too is a work of the overflow of God's grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of your grace, for its overflow, for the fact that it is boundless, that it superabounds and covers over all of our sin. Father, we, we confess our dependence on your grace. We confess our tendency to try to put ourselves in your place. But this morning, God, we thank you all the more in light of that reality for your willingness to put yourselves in our place. Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus that is seen in his life, and his active obedience, but it's also seen in his death and passive obedience, taking on this the, the consequence that our sin deserves. Father, as we come to 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 Christ's table this morning. May both of those things be close to our hearts. May we have a deeper awareness of what it costs to make us yours. And as we do so, Lord, we pray that you would give us joy because you weren't compelled to to extend grace to us. No, you gave it as a free gift driven by love. So Lord, help us to receive your love this morning. Help us to sing its praise. Help us to experience it. And God, as we take and eat and drink of it, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and help us to go out and extend your love to others. May we be vessels of your superabounding grace and love. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.